You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Saturday, January 6th. This is The Christian Commute, and this is a special episode of The Christian Commute. That's right. It is a studio show, and listen... I'm in the squeaky chair all this time, and I still have the squeaky chair. I'll try to not move in the chair if I can. Uh, so that squeak was for you, Shane. Guys, I <coughs> I just felt that it was past time to get back to the Four Cross Point City Church series. I remember being very satisfied with the Rockbridge series that I did, where I reviewed an entire sermon series. And I got four sermons in to the Four Cross Point City Church series, and I stopped doing it. The, and I'm looking back. The last time that I published one was June 27th, 2022. I got through four of them. And have I had a child since then? Let me think. No, no, my baby was born. Good, I think I was doing this with the newborn. What was I thinking? Anyway, life happened, man. I've had so much soccer and to coach and baseball and basketball to coach and watch uh, that I haven't been at this. But I just felt like uh, I need to get back to it because this church is just growing. And to be fair, I want to have an entire sermon series of them reviewed where I can send it to somebody and say, hey, don't go to Crosspoint. This, they're manipulating you. It's a seeker-sensitive church. Don't go there. So I'm going to be up front, okay? That's the reason I'm doing this. This isn't, this isn't like uh, I'm going to be totally objective. Now, to the scripture, I'm going to be object- objective. I'm going to be fair when I'm doing these sermon reviews, but I have a motive here. I don't want people to go here. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be too harsh on the sermon series reviews. I think I've been pretty fair in the first four. But, okay, all these years later, and thank God it's still on the website, the For Us series is what we're reviewing. Let's get back into it. This is part five in the For Us series. It's the presence of love. Here we go. The presence of love. Thanks to all of our kids and for our team for putting that together. So grateful. Um, listen, before we move on, I, I just want to take a moment and get serious if I can. But leading up to today, I, I just felt this really strong leading from the Lord that we need to take a moment and, and to pray over a certain group of women in our church. So uh, I, I guess they just had a children's performance from the choir. I don't know. Uh, that's what he's talking about. And he's about to pray for a specific group. I don't know if this sermon's happening on Mother's Day or not. I don't know. But he's got a prayer, uh, and they're playing the organ. In the, well, I don't know the organ. The keyboard's in the back. It's time to get emotional, so turn on the keyboard music. Because I, I know that for many women, this is a great day of celebration. But for other women, this is... Uh, it must be Mother's Day. Day. And we've got several women in our church even right now who are experiencing the pain of wanting to become moms and for some reason they can't be. 
This is very typical of churches when they recognize Mother's Day that the barren women get offended. And I feel bad. I really feel bad for the barren women, and I'm sure James honestly does too. Um, it's pretty sad. I also want us to pray and ask that that God would open wombs, that God would give life, that God would meet the desires that exist in the hearts of these women. I mean, we've prayed for women in our church in the past and seen God give life supernaturally and miraculously. And so why not? I mean, I'm not saying that didn't happen. But what I'm saying is that God gives all life supernaturally. Do you guys know, biblically speaking, and I'm not really trying to criticize James here so much as I want us to be aware of this, is that God knits babies together in the womb. That's what, that's what the Bible says. That there, every conception, God has acted upon it. It's not like he, you know, like a deist God who spun up the wheel and, you know, people are having babies. God wills every baby. So it's all supernatural. But of course, yes, uh, barren women, if people pray for them, God can open their wombs. And you know, thank God when he does that. So James is going to pray for them, but they, they're really laying it on thick with the background music here. I'd ask him to do it again. Amen? So right now, if you are with one of those women, um, either here in Cartersville, at another location, uh, even watching at home, I would just encourage you, if you would, just grab their hand if you're sitting next to them, put an arm around them if you would. And uh, if you are one of these women, let me just extend this to you as well. If you're at one of our physical locations. Uh, if you're at one of the physical locations, which is indicative that he believes a virtual online location is church. That's not. All of these places are going to have an online, quote unquote, campus where they, like, you're a part of the church. Father, we, we first want to stop and acknowledge the fact that you are creator and giver of What is this? What is this background music? Life. Is this? You know what it reminds me of? I'm gonna. I'm gonna improve it. I said I do. I that I will. Till the end of all time. Faithful and true. I swear. The next time, I don't really swear this because I'm not going to do it. The next time I'm in church and they start playing the, the piano song before the praying, I'm going to stand up and sing When I Said I Do by Clint Black. Because that's what this reminds me of. The, but the piano in the background reminds me of like this emotional Clint Black song. And by, I'm not trying to mock what he's doing here. We should absolutely be praying for the barren women in our church. That's, that's a big deal. You know, I'm, I'm being kind of jocular here, but it's, it's such a show when the piano person gets behind. So here's this. Before we dive into the Word, I want to say this. And I think I said this a year and a half ago when I said I'm about to review this sermon. I think he's about to do 1 Corinthians 13, and it's pretty much impossible to mess up 1 Corinthians 13. And um, there's not going to be much criticism of what he says here. Overall, this is a pretty fair handling of 1 Corinthians 13. I will take issue with what he says about heavenly languages, but as compared to the other messages in this series that we've listened to, there's not a lot of manipulation of the crowd here. It's just a very straightforward exposition 
of what 1 Corinthians 13 means. And we're talking about love, right? It's, it, like I said, it's really hard to mess this up because the message of 1 Corinthians 13 is it doesn't matter what you're doing if you, if you don't have love. And he, he, does a, he does a fair, faithful job of presenting that to the congregation. Now, why didn't I skip over this one? Because I'm not going to skip over when he does a good job. And just say, go through and, and do all the bad things. Because I'm trying to give an entire view. Okay? It's not, the, it's not the good things. It's not the bad things. It's the whole package. And remember what Spurgeon said. I think Spurgeon. Is it Spurgeon? Who said, discernment is not knowing right from wrong, but right from almost right. So if he was wrong all the time, people would pretty much sense it. So people, people are going to say, I remember when Pastor James preached about love. It was great. Yeah, but you didn't notice when he was manipulating you all those other times in the For Us series. So I'm about to play the sermon other than to, by the way, give you another reminder. It is suns out, guns out at Cross Point City Church. James is wearing, it's sort of a rather odd shirt. I feel like it's a shirt that Robin Hood and the Merry Men might wear. It's a hoodie, but it's not a sweater. So it's like a long sleeve tee with buttons and strings coming out of a hoodie, and it's really tight because James has great biceps. I do not have great biceps. James has great biceps. I think he does cross CrossFit. Good for him for being in shape. But he there if like it kind of reminds me of Stephen Furtick when these pastors are kind of muscly. You're, they're not going to be wearing a suit where you can't see their muscles or, or more of a baggy dress shirt. It's going to be tight. And you can see James's muscles and his his hip little Robin Hood hoodie here. Uh, I only bring it up to say it's sort of unusual for a preacher to dress that way. If you went to what we'll call maybe one of the older or traditional churches in town, this is Cartersville, right? So if you go to Tabernacle, Patrick is not going to be wearing a t-shirt hoodie around his biceps. If you go to First Baptist, Kyle is probably he's going to be wearing a blazer. Uh, he doesn't always wear a tie, but he's not going to be wearing one of these like tight shirts or fashionable, if you will, trendy clothes. When you see the seeker-sensitive churches with the light show, uh, it's they're, you're generally speaking, the pastor is going to be wearing more trendy clothes. I'm not saying it's a sin or oh, it's against the Bible to wear trendy clothes. I'm saying everything's a presentation. From the background to the piano music to the sun's out, guns out, Robin Hood shirt. Now let's get to the sermon itself. That's hey, that's what we came for. Here it is. Prayer for one other thing, if I can. This is deeply personal for my wife and myself and our family. You know, many times I'll have people in the church come to me and, and just ask James, "How can we pray for you?" And I'm going to give you a way that you can be praying for me and for my wife and our family in the coming weeks, okay? As many of you know, my wife is pregnant with our third daughter right now, which we're super excited about. So, um, this sermon is more than two years old. The baby has been born by now, and just, the, he's going to talk about complications in the pregnancy, but I think the baby came through uh, well, or and... and I seem to remember one of his children had to have some surgery. I don't know if it was this one or another one of his kids. But uh, for those of you who are wondering, the baby he's talking about came through, uh, as far as I know. And um, that's great. 
There's nothing more stressful because I've been there too and my wife's been there when you have uh, sort of a uterine problem with your baby in there and there's nothing you can do about it but hope the baby comes through. So praise God that the baby made it. And so there's an answered prayer. We just wanted to let you know what's happening in our lives and in our world right now. I understand I'm the pastor of this church, but my family is also a part of this church family. And, and we need our church family in times like these. And so I'm, I'm asking you to pray. And, and I want to ask you to pray for three things in particular. These are the things that I'm praying for as a husband. Number one, that God would supernaturally thicken that area of that scar. Um, like I'm, I'm truly praying that my wife might go back in for a scan in the coming weeks and the doctor is absolutely amazed because oh my gosh that thing is doubled in size uh, so that's and what guys you don't have to be a pentecostal tongue person to pray for stuff like this baby stays put until she is ready to come and then we are also praying that she doesn't have any type of early contractions that her body would just rest and relax and do what it needs to do until this new little baby girl gets here and so if you guys would pray for us um, and just ask those things specifically on our behalf, we would be so grateful. Just know that we love you and uh, the prayers mean more than you know, okay? We'll keep you posted along the way. Uh, so praise the Lord that uh, they didn't okay, lose this baby. Bible, go ahead and grab it and head to 1 Corinthians 13 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are continuing on in a series today called For Us. And I would suspect that our passage is probably familiar to most of us, even if we're not church people. But if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard a pastor read some of these verses. In fact, at every wedding ceremony I perform, I read some of these verses. But what most people don't realize is that Paul didn't write these verses for weddings, and he didn't even write these verses about romantic relationships, although they can be easily applied to those relationships. No, Paul wrote these verses about the use of spiritual gifts. Okay, here's what he says starting in verse 1, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men... He's right. When you go to a wedding and you hear this, it's not about romantic love. Uh, when I got married, uh, the preacher read from Ruth, where you go, I will go, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And like, That's two women, um, the mother, a mother-in-law and a mother. But uh, yes, this is read at weddings all the time. I, I don't know if I would agree with him that it's a, it's about spiritual gifts. I, I mean, it's obviously about spiritual gifts because he he mentions the spiritual gifts. I, I think what what it what it's about is that love is the paramount, most important thing, and love is a fruit of the spirit. It's definitely a Christian virtue that you get from the spirit of God. Uh, I think what Paul is saying here is that. Uh, you know, none of these things don't matter unless you have love. That's the greatest thing. And maybe that's what James is saying, too. Uh, but I just, I wouldn't say it like that. How about that? Men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And we'll stop there and talk, all right? As we learned last week, in the verses that precede these back in chapter 12, Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. And he points out that there's one body made up of many different members, that's all of us, 
And as members of this one body, we have been gifted by the Holy Spirit of God who now indwells us with some type of spiritual gift. I'm going to stop right here and say that I completely agree with what he's saying, but his ecclesiology doesn't line up with that because this is a campus church with an online part of it too. Is it, well, what's the body? Is it Cartersville? Is it Adairsville? Is it Rome? Because you know this guy's getting piped into every city. Which, which one is it? What's the body? So Paul is talking about local churches, but he's already gone beyond that with his multi-campus model. But again, not really taking issue with what he's saying. Like I said earlier, this is almost impossible to mess up. Every believer has at least one. And it's through your spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit manifests himself in and through your life. And the gifts that he gives you and the gifts that he gives us, they're for us. They're not for us personally, they're for us collectively. Like the expectation is that we would use the gifts that he's given to serve this body, to build up this body, so that this body functions in the way it's meant to function. Well, the problem in the city of Corinth and in this church that Paul wrote to was that they ignored these truths. See, the Corinthian church was a church that didn't treasure every gift. They elevated certain gifts over other gifts. The gifts of tongues in particular, okay? We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks, but... This, this gift was a major problem in the city of Corinth, not due to the gift itself, but due to its misuse. This was also a church that, instead of treasuring every person, elevated certain people over other people. You see it back in chapter 11 of the book. This is very good treatment of the background. Believers coming together to the communion table to take the Lord's Supper, and there was division between the rich and the poor. And so at the end of chapter 12, Paul writes, and he says, look, I want to show you a more excellent way. Because your way isn't working so well. Okay, your way, you're like blowing it in a big way. And so I need to show you a better way. And then he turns his attention to love. And in the verses that we just read, these opening three verses, he shows us who we are without love. He's describing us when we act in an unloving manner toward other people. And he addresses three categories, the first of which is speech. He says in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men... And of angels. Now, think back with me, if you will, to week two of the series, if you were here. In week two, we walked through a list of supernatural gifts, the gift of tongues included, which, by the way, often gets a bad rap today, and it shouldn't, because every gift of the Holy Spirit is a good gift. Amen? As weird as it might seem to you, it's still a good gift, because it came from Him. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. Um, But the gift of tongues, I told you, it's not just a singular gift, it's a category of gifts. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, that there are various kinds of tongues. And I believe we're seeing that right here in verse 1. Stop. The reason there are various kinds of tongues is because a tongue, by definition, what the word means, is a language. So if I were to say there are various types of tongues, I would say there's Spanish, there's French, there's Romanian, there's Italian. There's Portuguese, and that's just the Romantic languages, not to mention Germanic languages like German and English, and then you have Mandarin and Japanese and Korean and Vietnamese, and there's languages in Africa, the Swahili. So in that time, there was Greek, there was Aramaic, okay, there's eventually going to be Latin in the Roman Empire. So various kinds of tongues are not talking about it being a category of gifts. Like, like skills you get 
and one of these sword and sorcery games. Like if you're playing World of Warcraft and you're a wizard, like, oh, I can cast this kind of spell, but this other guy can cast this kind of spell. That's not what gifts of tongues are. Various kinds of tongues means there's lots of different languages. That's what it means. Not like there's three or four different kind of tongue gifts. All right? That's wrong. That has nothing to do with the point that love is greater than tongues and prophecy or whatever else. And that these, period, that these people don't need to be so impressed with themselves because they have these gifts. They shouldn't because they, they're not acting lovingly. And that's the point of the sermon. But he's going off on this Sam Storms type Pentecostal tangent and saying, oh, there's various kinds of tongues. No, they're not. That's Pentecostal nonsense. That the tongues of men... Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 12.10 that there are various kinds of tongues. And I believe we're seeing that right here in verse 1. That the tongues of men is a reference to human speech. And so this is speech unknown to the speaker but known to the hearers. It's what we see in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples of Jesus Christ are waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. And he finally comes and he falls on them and they start speaking in all of these other languages. And they have no idea what they're saying but the people in the crowd know. Like the people in the crowd who are in the city of Jerusalem for Pentecost are sitting there and they're very, very confused. How is that guy from Galilee speaking my language? Human speech. Tongues of men. And then the tongues of angels then would be a reference to heavenly speech or angelic speech. This is speech unknown to the speaker but known to God. And I understand that there are people who would argue against that. Let me stop and say that's me. This is just an absurd argument. And I want to tell you what, it's not the point of the passage. This is not the message that James is preaching. He's preaching the message of love here. It's not the message that Paul is giving. He's saying love. But what people do, people who believe in the private prayer languages, people who believe that there's this language of heaven that you get in a tongue, what they do is they go here and say, ah, here it is. Just like the Mormons baptize people for the dead, they, Mormons, what they do in their temple, for those of you who don't know, is they baptize fellow Mormons in the name of their ancestors, people who have died and did not know the Mormon faith and weren't baptized, so they can go to Mormon heaven. And you say, well, that's not a Christian practice. And the Mormons say, oh, 1 Corinthians 15, what about them that are baptized for the dead? And there's like no detail on what that is. And they say, say, this is it. And what Pentecostals do is they speak nonsense in their prayer closet and call it a heavenly language. And then they say, see, tongues of angels. What Paul is doing here is making a rhetorical point. He's speaking hyperbolically. If I have, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. Well, he's not differentiating between the tongues of men. He's saying, if I talk like they do in heaven, if I speak as the angels speak. In other words, angels are a higher order being than men because angels live in heaven. He's not talking about a heavenly language. And listen, the people in Corinth, we have, by the way, we have no other biblical explanation about there being a heavenly language. The people in Corinth would have to believe already that there's a such thing as a heavenly language, and they'd have to say, and they'd have to connect that that's what he's talking about. 
That's what they'd have to do. Where in the Bible does it talk about these heavenly languages? Where? Now, James is going to make an argument from other literature for that, and we'll let him get to that. But just in my opinion, and I don't know why he's doing it, anybody who preaches this passage and then starts talking about heavenly tongues is messing up. It's, they're just being tangential instead of just bringing the point home about love. And I think the reason that James is doing this is because what he's trying to create at Crosspoint, sort of this Baptocostal church, where Baptist and Church of God people will, will show up. Okay. Um, it's probably true for some of us in our church. That's fine. We can disagree on this. But uh, I know that there are some people who would say, come on, James, there's no such thing as angelic speech or heavenly speech. Paul's exaggerating here. He's using a literary device called hyperbole to make there a point. Yes. <laughs> be right on that, but I'm I am right. Back just a bit, if I can, because there is evidence within Jewish literature to support the notion and idea of angelic speech. One of the greatest sources. People just amend this. The Testament of Job. The Testament of Job. The Book of Job in your Bible, but the Testament of Job, which is an extra biblical book that the Jewish people read and studied and held to. But in chapters 48 through 50 of Job's Testament. His three daughters speak in the dialects of angels, all empowered by and enabled by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, we can argue about all that later because that's not the point, okay? Okay, some of you may disagree with me. Here's my evidence. Now let's talk about something else. I got the, I got the pulpit. Here's my opinion. If you disagree, we'll talk about it later. You, you notice how his argument works here. What he says is they do have an idea. And of a a heavenly tongue because we get it from this extra biblical literature from the testament of Job, which was would have been a book that the culture had, but it's not in the canon of scripture. And by the way, there's there's a lot of this uh, apocryphal literature out that the out there. The Catholics put some of it in their Bible, not all of it, and uh, a lot of it purport. There's one that purports to be written by Solomon, which obviously wasn't, uh, but. <laughs> there's a book about Enoch. There's all kind of these books from the intertestamental period and from and, and beyond, and they're not scripture. And the spiritual things they say, a lot of it's not true. Now, but they are sort of a part of the culture of that time. People would have known the story. So let me let me give you an example. Let's go to Jude. Jude verse eight. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Well, what in the world is Jude talking about? Because this doesn't happen in the Old Testament. We see the body of Moses being buried of God, but buried by God because he never enters the promised land. But what, where is Michael disputing over the body of Moses with the devil? Well, there is a book that we no longer had called The Assumption of Moses, which existed at the time of the early church. And it, it gives an account between Michael and, devil, uh, Michael and the devil about the body of Moses. You can read about this. Uh, it got questions. And we only know about this book because one of the church historians, Origen, told us about it. 
He told us about this account, and that's probably what Jude is referring to. But Jude is not necessarily saying this actually happened. He's referring to a story everybody would know to make his point. So even if Paul was referring to the Testament of Job, it doesn't mean he's saying this is veridical. He's saying it's like this. So just as... The devil didn't really dispute with, or Michael didn't really dispute with the devil over the body of Moses. It's from this apocryphal story. The the testament of Job is these heavenly languages. We, there's just some some whoever wrote the testament of Job made this up. It doesn't mean the Corinthians or, or Paul believe in it or saying it's a thing. And now he's using this to make it a spiritual gift. It's a tenuous argument, James. A tenuous argument. But let's move on because he moved on. And I don't want you to miss the point. Paul's big point is this. He's teaching here that it doesn't matter how great your gift of speech might be. If you don't love people, nobody's listening. Like you can stand up on platforms like this and you can wow people with all that you have to say. But if you don't love people, nobody cares. Okay, I heard a great quote from John Maxwell recently. He said that people hear your words, but they feel your attitude. All right, there's this phrase, and I've heard it a lot too, (laughs) because I come off as a dry, autistic jerk. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's true. But Paul's not saying nobody cares what you think if you don't have love. In the Corinthian church, there's a lot of people who care what the tongue people think. The tongue people don't have love And the Corinthians think these tongue people are great. They are impressed with things other than love. And that is why Paul is having to say love is more important. What what James is doing is speaking about an axiomatic social thing. That's just kind of a truism. But these people weren't, weren't like super knowledgeable I mean, they, they do have knowledge because knowledge is a gift too. They can have, I, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge, but that wasn't knowledge that they had. You know, it, it's not like they're being a jerk like Sheldon Cooper, okay, or Seth Dunn, all right? They're, that's not the same. These Corinthians are super impressed with the people who have the supernatural gifts, and they're not paying attention to know that love is more important. If they did know that, inherently, Paul wouldn't have had to write them. So James is just talking about a truism about, you know, John Maxwell said this, which is true, but it's not what Paul's saying. Stick to the text. We need an altar call in this moment, right? Some of y'all need some prayer. That's convicting, isn't it? But it is so true. Again, you can say all the right things you want to say, but if people don't feel an attitude of love flowing from you, then they're not listening to your speech. At that point, Paul says, your life is noise. Let me stop right here. Not because he's not right. It is. That's what Paul says, your life is noise. I want to put a personal note on here to people who listen to this. Because I know the people, especially the people here in town, my greater podcast audience listens to me and they get it. They listen to my podcast. But for the people who've just only listened to this podcast, and hopefully you've got this far, 
I'm not doing this to be mean. I'm not doing this because I think I know better than James or I know better than the type of people who'd go to this sinker-sensitive light show church. I'm not saying I'm too good to go to your light show church. You guys don't know any better. You need to listen to me. I know. That's not the reason I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I love my neighbor. And it pains me that my neighbors, like my friends and neighbors and my kids' friends, people I love, People who I think are good people. You know, the Bible says there's no good people. You know what I mean by that. Like, people that I think are good people that I care about go to this nonsense, Peter Pan shirt wearing, seeker sensitive, light show, goat show, manipulative church. And this guy wants their money in volunteer time so he can boil frogs in their sin and their online campus. And I hate it. I don't hate the people there. I love my neighbors in my town. That's why I did the Rockbridge series. That's why I'm doing this series. Rockbridge is where I live. Calhoun Dalton, I work over there. Cross Point is where I live. This is my home. I, I, I go to, to the people on my sports teams that I care about that go to this. My barber, my, my hairdresser goes to this church. I'll, I'll, my hairdresser is my friend. You know, I, I want to tell people who think they've gotten into something good that it's not good. My, my next door neighbor goes here. He's the nicest guy in the world. I, I have the best next door neighbors. My across the street neighbors go, they don't like me, but they, they go there and I feel for them too. So I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to say, I know more Bible than this guy. Let me tell you something. I could never build an organization that big. Couldn't do it around my personality. Couldn't do it. He's done it, and I can't do that. But what I'm trying to tell you is, don't, it's not about that. It's not about, don't think about me as being hateful or judgmental or wrong. I just want you people to listen and consider. Please listen to this whole series. And when I play the Clint Black song and have a laugh, it's not because I don't love. Okay? It's because it was, it was, I had to do it because it sounded like Clint Black. But listen, I'm doing this out of love. This is out of love. And it looks a little different than what you might expect. So back to the sermon. You open your mouth and it sounds like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, these were instruments used by pagan cults. And so Paul very well could be saying here that if you speak without love, your speech resembles the sound, the empty sound, hollow noises of pagan worship. That's heavy stuff. The next category is spiritual gifts. And so after addressing our speech, he then lists off three other spiritual gifts. You just said tongues were a spiritual gift, not just speech. Number two, knowledge. This is when God the Holy Spirit discloses certain knowledge to you about someone else so that you can speak God's will or purpose into their life. And then the gift of faith, which is this supernatural sense of confidence that the Spirit of God gives you that allows you to know and believe that Sorry God for the squeak. act in a certain way. And so here's what Paul's saying. I can have prophetic powers. I can be that guy receiving regular revelation from God. I can possess all knowledge that can be possessed. The Holy Spirit can give it all to me. I can possess all the faith <coughs> in the world. Faith that allows me to move mountains. But he says next, if I don't have love, I am nothing. Like, without love, I'm a spiritual zero. You ever heard that old adage that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care? This is what Paul's driving at here. He's going, look, you can have all the knowledge in the world and all the faith in the world, but without love, you are helping no one. 
And then category number three is self-sacrifice. So he talks here about generosity and martyrdom. I can give away all that I have. All of my money, all of my stuff, all of my possessions, my time, my effort, my like all of that. I can give it all away. I can even give up my body to be burned, he says. This is Daniel 3 kind of stuff. If you're not a church person and you don't know this story, there's a great story about three teenage dudes in Daniel 3. They were in a pagan nation. Stop it. Like, this is the kind of thing. Like, I don't think that... Oh, let me let me look at the footnote. Maybe it, it does. The footnote does go to Daniel three. I don't know that Paul was talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but maybe he was the Nazbi people think he was um, to surrender my body to be burned. So he's going to tell that story. Great. Now the Bible has a little footnote that says, "Hey, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego." So that's when he can go say, "Hey." Remember in Daniel, turn to Daniel and maybe read the story or give a quick recount of it. But what does he say? If you're not a church person, my hands are moving, but I'm not saying anything. You can't see me. You know, I got the, I'm doing the autistic hand clap right now. What are you doing if you're not a church person? Do you understand that he's, these sermons are tailored for if you're not a church person? But that's not what sermons are supposed to be. This is the Andy Stanley seeker-sensitive model where he's got to sort of like, hold on, let me tell you a cool story if you don't know it. If you're not a church person, you don't need that. You don't preach like everybody's a church person. They're in church. People can look it up later. All right? Just tell the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or you don't even have to mention it. Just say, the Bible says this in Daniel 3. Maybe Paul's referring to this in Daniel 3. And just tell the story. The church people will say, oh yeah, I remember that. And it will resonate with them. And the people who are not quote-unquote church people will say, oh, that's a neat story. Maybe I need to read it. But he said twice in this sermon already, if you're not a church person, for those of you who aren't church people, the the church is for God. Evangelism is for non-church people. And corporate worship is for church people. I'm glad that there's not quote-unquote church people there, but that's my point I'm trying to tell you guys. I'm trying to say, notice the little things. You might think I'm harping on this or going on a tangent. Notice the little things. He expects a bunch of non-church people to be in there. It's tailored to that. And you might think that's a great idea. You might think that's evangelistic, but that's just not a biblical idea of church. The called-out ones, ecclesia. The the, The saints are holy ones. If you're not a saint, you're not in the church, church ain't for you. It's for you when you come to Christ. ...called Babylon, and the king of that nation built this golden statue, and he said, look, I want all of you to bow down and worship my great statue, and if you don't, I'll throw you into a fiery furnace. And so everybody bowed down, and they worshiped the statue, except for these three teenage dudes. We're not worshiping that. We worship the one true God. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, in you go. I know they're teenage dudes, but he, you, if you're a non-church people and you hear teenage dudes, you think about the guys like driving around at the local high school. You think about like the dude working at Ingalls, who's your bag boy. You think about teenagers, like they don't amount to much in the world. They're just teenagers. And these teenagers stood against the king. Daniel, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were nobility. They were the finest of 
the Jewish people, and that's why the king brought him in to his court to train them because they were supposed to be administrators, all right? These are not just teenagers. These are men of noble birth. They're important guys. So he's like, these dudes, these teenagers. No, they're, they're like, like dukes or counts in the Middle Ages or something like that. These are high-class, very important people. Not just random teenagers. Not just dudes. There's some surfer dude teenagers down at the beach. No! It's, they're nobility. Super educated, important people. The finest of the Jews. And here's Paul saying, I can do that. I can give up my life in a dramatic fashion, but if I don't have love, my sacrifice means nothing. It profits no one, and it helps no one. And so when you understand what Paul's driving at within the larger context of these chapters 12 through 14, here's the simple point he's making. He's teaching that the evidence of the Spirit's presence is the presence of love. That the evidence of the Spirit's presence is the presence of love. Please hear me on this. The evidence of the <sighs> If the Corinthians were not loving people, and we just got dem- through demonstrating that they weren't, how is it that they had all of these legitimate spiritual gifts? The evidence of the Spirit's presence is the presence of love. I mean, Jesus says, this is how you know people are my disciples, the way you love one another. But the, you just said, James, or you just pointed out, James, that these people have legitimate spiritual gifts. They're using them wrong, but they have them. But where's the love? Paul's having to write these people and say, you guys aren't loving. Spirit's presence is not simply the presence of gifts. Okay, spiritual gifts are highly important. And Paul in the text is not holding up gifts against love. No, he's not. Both of them at the same time. Spiritual gifts are highly important. However, if you are not motivated by love when using your gifts, it reveals a lack of the Spirit's presence in your life. Okay, Paul, he says this in Galatians 5.22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. love. Peace, it's patience, love. kindness, joy, gentleness, self-control. believe that all the rest of the fruit flows out of this first part of the fruit that he mentions. That the reason you are joyful and patient and kind and gentle and faithful and the reason you practice self-control is because the Holy Spirit of God has first birthed love in your life. He's produced love, and then out of love flows the rest of the fruit. And so again, the point is really simple. If the Spirit of God is actively present and working in you and through you, you're going to love people. So let me just stop and ask the question. Do you love people? That'll hit you hard if you don't. Truly. Do you go to church to hear the goat show music, or do you love people? church, so much so that you are willing to sacrifice and give and serve all to encourage them and build them up. Now, I'm going to stop right here. This is sort of the only kind of, we're going to try to manipulate you into serving on the serve team and doing the hospitality team and the parking lot team, et cetera, et cetera. As I've said from the beginning of this Fourth Cross Point City Church sermon, they set out to say, all right, we need people to volunteer to run the organization. And... 
we're going to preach on that, and we got to make it look like the Bible. So they're going to pick part of Corinthians. He's not, remember, he's not going, all right, well, I'm done with Acts now. I'm going to move on to Romans. Now I'm done with Romans. I'm going to move on to Corinthians. That's not what he's doing. He's picking parts of Corinthians to get people to serve. The end game of these sermons, I mean, evangelism is one of it, but the end game of all these sermons is to get this crowd of people to step forward and do volunteer labor. And that's where he's getting, like, do you love this church and people enough to serve it, to sign up for all the stuff we want you to sign up for? Do you think Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to sign up for the serve team, to sign up for parking lot duty, to sign up to make the coffee? No, he's telling the people to stop being awful. All the things James talked about, like the rich ignoring the poor, and they're they're bringing food to church, but some people are going without food. They're showing favoritism to some people. Everybody, some people are loved and some people aren't. It's not not equal. They're not showing Christian egalitarianism, not the bad kind, the good kind. And they're not demonstrating love for everyone in the body. But now he's turning it into, well, if you don't love people, and if you do love people, you need to serve. All right? Hey, I'm going to tell you something. You can love people and not volunteer for one of the blue million free labor jobs they want you to do at, at, at these churches that need a volunteer army every Sunday. When, listen, there's churches out there, and their volunteer army of like 100 people who aren't going to the worship service anymore. Or that's an entire church of people somewhere else. If you're so big that you need a volunteer army, plant another church. So this this is this is sort of the you, you gotta pay attention. You gotta understand what the whole series is about. This is the you need a volunteer be loving. This is not here, take the lesson home. This is this is what I want you to do. You leave church on Sundays, you head out into the world. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Always putting the needs and interests and desires of other people before your own. Treating other people in the way you want to be treated. Do you love your enemies even? Because being a follower of Jesus Christ means that you love even your enemies. Matthew 5.44. You love and you pray for them. Do you love people? Hey, Crosspoint people. I'm trying to shut down your church. If you think I'm your enemy, you got to love me. (laughs) you got to love me. But I'm not your enemy. Uh, I want you to wrestle with that question. Because in the text, what Paul does next is he gives us this beautiful description of what love does and what it doesn't do. And we're going to walk through these descriptions. And by the time we're done, you're going to know whether or not you truly love people. All right, so keep reading. Verse 4. He goes on and he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, before we unpack those statements in greater detail, I want to give you two general truths to note. These are critical, so please lean in on this. Okay, number one, in these verses, Paul, he's describing the self-originating love of God. The self-originating love. Love of God. And I'll explain what I mean. First John 4, 8, the Apostle John says that God is love. Well, here in these verses, Paul describes love, and in doing so, in essence, he's describing God. 
Like he's telling us who God is and how God acts and what God does and what God doesn't do toward people. He's showing us here that this kind of supernatural love, it originates with him, it flows from him, and it doesn't depend on anything or anyone outside of him. Which means on a practical level, listen, that God's love for you doesn't depend upon you. Come on, somebody. That deserved a better amen. I mean, I got like four or five, but, but that's really good news, isn't it? Like God didn't decide to love you because you're so lovable. We all know the truth. There's plenty about us that isn't lovable at all. And it's not like God looked at you and went, oh, they're just killing it down there. Of course, why wouldn't I love them? This, by the way, he's making a very good point. This is, he's not saying it, but let's talk about like unconditional election. He loves you because he chooses to love you. It wasn't anything you did. It has everything to do with the fact that he is a good and gracious God. Absolutely true. Good job. But 2,000 years ago, he chose to put his love on display for you through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what John goes on to uh, This is great because he points this to the gospel. That's really good. Jesus into the world to give us life. This is sort of why I say you can't mess this up. It's hard to mess this one up. It's about how much God loves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. This is how God has loved us. He didn't, he didn't choose to love us because we loved him first. No, God went first. And as people loved by him, the expectation on our lives now is that we would love other people in the same way. What a great exposition on love, God's love for us, the condition of election in that it's unconditional, not because we're so good. There's nothing we had to offer. Like the, the, the graciousness and, and goodness of God. This is the kind of thing where people will remember where James proclaimed, proclaimed the, the scripture so well and proclaimed the, the love of God and proclaimed the gospel and talked about how much God loved us at the cross. And they'll say, oh, James preaches the Bible. Yeah, I've heard him do it. Oh, I've heard him do it too. I'm not saying he doesn't. But like I said, it's the other things you need to pay attention to. Let me tell you something. If you're at a church that doesn't do this, that doesn't get to a verse about the love of God and then point people towards the cross and talk about uh, the love of God for people and the gospel, if you're at a church that doesn't proclaim the gospel during the sermons, whether there's no lost people in the congregation or not, and everybody's a church person, if you're at a church that doesn't do this, find a different one because they're doing it wrong. Everything points to Jesus and God's love. This is glorifying God, okay? Good. It's not about what they do well. That's not the problem. Okay? Don't get so enamored with the the greatness of this and miss the problems that you don't see that I'm trying to point out to you. In this series. And listen, when we think two shows from now, we get to the music pastor preaching, and it's like then it'll be more apparent, just like it should have been apparent in the early sermon series. And that's, guys, like I was saying, I'm not going to skip the one that he does a great job on. That this supernatural love that originates with God would now originate with us, that it would flow from us, that our love for people wouldn't depend upon them what they do or don't do, but that we would simply love in, in, in light of the fact that we have first been loved by God. This is the self-originating love that 
It starts with him. Secondly, the second truth to know, love is a verb. Love is a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. In other words, it's not something you possess. It is something that you do. It is a decision. It is an action. It is a choice. It is a behavior. And it's so important for you to know this because the world in which we live often says otherwise. Like we often only ever hear about love as a feeling or as an emotion. This is why you hear people all the time talking about falling in love and falling out of love. Can, can I help somebody today? Listen, you don't fall. Strong's G26, agape, part of speech, noun. Okay, so, <laughs> I mean, it could also be used in a verbal form. When you love people, that is not just a feeling. Um, it's, I don't disagree with what he's saying. Love can be a verb. I love you. Obviously, that's a verb. But I have love. That's a noun. So love is a verb and a noun. So forgive me for picking apart the grammar. But yes, I'm not disagreeing in principle with what he's saying, but love's a noun. In love or out of love, you fall into and out of emotions. And love is more than an emotion. He's talking about eros love. He's talking about agape love. Come on, parents in the room, you can love that heathen kid even when you don't feel like it. <laughs> and if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like there are days you don't want to love that kid, you want to fight that kid. Let's go, me and you right now. Spouses in the room, it means that you can love that husband or wife even when you don't feel like it. This is true, and that's a good pastoral statement. And I do know what you're talking about because I am married. Guess what? You can. You can choose to do it anyway. Employees, it means that you can choose to love that boss, that, that boss who rides your tail, who speaks down to you, who criticizes you, who micromanages you. You can love even that person. Why? Because. Hold on a minute before we go much further, said Rod Stewart. This is all very good application about the people in your life, about loving others, but you notice the people. In your family, like your kids and your spouse, they're, they're going to be a part of your church family. This is first and foremost applied to fellow believers within the church. But yes, also we do need to love our boss who drives us crazy. That's outside of the church. But this is good application. This is where the rubber meets the road for people in their lives. Love is a choice. It is a verb. It is something that you do. And I truly believe that there's somebody here who needs to hear this today because you have a relationship in your life that is in crisis right now. And that relationship is in crisis because you are trusting way too much in how you feel. I just want to speak some truth into your life as a pastor who loves you. Okay, listen to me. Stop. I mean, that's true. That's, that's like a Pentecostal saying somebody here today, your back hurts. But that's not what the scripture is about. By the way, I'm going through the scripture and seeing every time Paul says love in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's, it's, it's Strong's 26. It's a noun every time. Stop letting feelings dictate your decision to love. Start loving that person in light of the fact that God first loved you. Okay? Mm -hmm, you that's good that? advice. How do you do that? What does it look like practically? Well, this is where Paul goes in the text. He describes love for us. And he starts with two positive expressions. He says, number one, that love is patient and it's kind. And so there is a passive expression of love then and an active expression of love. 
Patience is the passive expression of love. So you're not really doing anything for someone. All you're doing is giving that person in your life time to uh, time and room to either act or to respond in a certain way. And it means if that person is suffering in some way, going through difficulty and hardship, that you even enter in and you experience it with them. I mean, the word itself, patience, means long-suffering. I'm suffering with you for the long haul. This is why they read that at weddings, man. This is why they read it at weddings. And this is when you acknowledge and notice a need or a desire in someone else's life, and you take it upon yourself to meet that need or desire. And we do this, why? Because it's what God has done for us. Okay, we see it in Romans 2.4, all in one verse. Paul tells us there that God has not only been patient with us, Praise God for that. We all need that. Amen. But it's also his kindness that leads to our repentance. And you need to catch the order there because this is critical. It is not your repentance that leads to God's kindness. God isn't kind to you because you woke up and decided one day, I need to turn some things around and clean my life up. No, the reason you desire to turn your life around and to clean some things up is because God has been kind to you. And he demonstrated his kindness toward you through Jesus Christ. Actively sought your good by sending his son into the world to save you. And then he was patient with you. Think about this. His son sacrificed his life to rescue you. And then God went, okay, now I'm going to give him some room. And now I'm going to give him some time to respond in faith. There you were out in the world acting like a complete heathen rebelling against God, ignoring God, serving as God over your own life, and God's just being patient, drawing you to himself so that he can do for you what you could never do on your own. And again, the expectation is that you, if you know him, if you belong to him, that you show the same patience and same kindness to other people. Now, Paul goes on after giving us these two positive expressions. So this is where it's really hard to do a sermon review podcast on this. Love does not envy. Because there's nothing critical to say here for a few minutes. She's just doing a good job of telling you what Paul is saying about love. Their stuff and their job and their spouse and their kids and their looks and their money and their car and their house and so on and so on and so on. You're envious. And when you envy someone, it creates discontent in you. It creates bitterness in you. And earlier in the book, in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul mm-hmm. says that when that happens, it leads to strife and it leads to division. It leads to people within the church competing with one another. And as long as you and I are competing with one another, we'll never love one another. And let me point out, thou shalt not covet. It's about loving your neighbor. If I want what you have, I'm not going to give you what I have. Instead, I'm either going to avoid you... Or I'm going to position myself against you and I'm going to strive really hard to obtain and acquire all that belongs to you so that I can make myself feel better about me. And Paul's saying love doesn't do that. It doesn't envy. Next, he says love does not boast. I love the literal translation here. To boast means to be a windbag. I just love that. And so Paul's going, don't be a windbag. We all know windbags, right? If you're with one, don't elbow them or look at them. You just stay locked up. I hear the silent amens going on. We'll pray for them later in the gathering. But listen, a windbag is someone who's just always running their mouth about their own greatness. Who's always trying to get other people's attention, all eyes on them. They want everybody to hear about them. They want everybody to notice them. And so they're just always talking 
about their life and their stuff and their job and their money and their power and their title. And, and church people do this too. Church people, they want to talk a lot about their church attendance and their serving and their giving and, you know, just everything that they're doing. I've never met anybody at church who does that, by the way. I've heard a lot of, like, church straw men. People do this. Maybe you have, but, like, I don't know these people. I'm just saying my gifts are pretty awesome. Have you heard about the wisdom I possess? I'm just saying, man. Like, I'm just saying. It's one of those things, like, if you're cool... You don't have to say you're cool. Constantly chirping. And Paul's saying, love doesn't do that. Love does not put self at the center of all things and then boast and brag to draw attention. No, love denies self. Love forgets about self. And love seeks the, the good, actively seeks the good of other people all at its expense. It doesn't boast. Paul goes on and says, love is not arrogant. It's not arrogant. The word arrogant there in the Greek means puffed up. And in the world, the puffed up person is the person whose successes go to their head. They're just doing really I love you podcast so people so much, the new neighbors who are listening to this, that I'm going to listen to James from Crosspoint preach 12 sermons. And when their life is over, it ain't going with them. So that you can see why you shouldn't go there. the church... The puffed up person is the person who possesses more knowledge than other people. Okay, Paul touches on this earlier in the book. Chapter 8, verse 1, where he says that love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. Listen, I've been in the church a long time. I've told you this before. My, my uh, mom went into labor with me sitting in a church service. So I've really been in church a long time, like my whole life. Literally my whole life. And I have often noticed as a guy who's been around church my whole life, that the most arrogant people in churches are the most well-educated people in churches. And that's not true for all. Let me stop. Um, I'm, I'm the most well-educated people most people who know me know. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree in accounting. And I have a master's degree in divinity. So compared to the average churchgoer, I am very educated. And just when it comes down to being in church my whole life, if I'd never gone to seminary, I'm sort of the same way. Uh, I've, I've seen my baby book that my mom filled out. It wasn't long after I was born that I was dedicated at church. It was like, so we dedicated Seth today. I mean, I got born and I went to the church nursery. So I know a lot of scripture, not because I went to seminary, but because I've been listening to it preached and taught to me at Sunday school and sermons my whole life. And when you get to a church like Crosspoint, you're going to get a lot of people who've been in church your whole life or their whole life, but you're going to get a lot of the nominal Christians who don't really know anything either. And there's going to be people in their life or in their lives who say, you shouldn't go to Crosspoint because this, that, and the other. And the reaction will be, well, you're puffed up with knowledge and arrogance. You're just overeducated. And I feel like people are going to have that reaction to me. Um, when I finally release all of this podcast series, a lot of it's been released for two years. Um, please don't do that. Please, when, please listen to the educated people. Um, they, they may be right. I, um, when I meet people in church who are, who are educated, they don't seem this way to me. 
like my Sunday school teacher with a seminary, he doesn't seem this way to me. Um, the associate pastor at FBC, he's a buddy of mine. He's super educated. He didn't seem that way to me. So I don't know why James is saying this. It, it, to me, it feels like a straw man. And I know Paul is talking about legitimately people who are all puffed up with knowledge and and they can be arrogant, but like, let's not set up straw men. Because we, we, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be puffed up. And I mean, I don't want to speak to this guy's experience. I haven't lived his life. Maybe he has met these people in church who are educated and they're arrogant. I know there's a lot of arrogant people in church. Uh, a lot of pastors and mega church or even mid-sized church pastors are arrogant. And I think that has to do with their position in life, not their education. Um, but don't write off the educated people offhand. All well-educated people in churches. I, I'm just saying, I've noticed that the people who are the smartest tend to be the most arrogant. Um, because they know that... Here's another thing. A lot of people think I'm arrogant. And the definition of an arrogance, if you look it up, is to think you're more important than you really are. And I'm going to tell you this about smart people. Okay, and I'm not trying to be a jerk. I have an IQ of uh, like 124 or 125. It's high. Um, I'm smart, and I come off arrogant because I tell people the things I know, and I correct people, and I say, "Well, I don't, I don't agree with that." Here's blah 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 blah. I'm very confident. Really smart people can come off as arrogant, and I think. I think, since we're giving opinions, he's giving his opinion, I'm giving mine. I think that he's wrong about that. I think he's he's judging smart people because a lot of smart people do come off as arrogant. I, I do. I don't. I know how important I am in any facet of life. I don't think I'm more important than I am, but I know I come off that way. And that's my fault for coming off that way. Um, but don't don't give judgments on how people come off. Be patient and kind, loving. Um, and th- what I don't like is when pastors start giving their opinion on sociological things, and then they don't have a sociological study to back it up. They just say, this is what I've noticed. You're not supposed to up there, be up there proclaiming what you've noticed. Proclaim the scripture. ...ins and the outs of this book, and because they've studied theology and they've studied doctrine, oftentimes they will use this book not as a tool to build up and encourage, but as a weapon to discourage and divide. And hear me, I don't ever want us to be those people here. Wow. Like, if we see that happening, we're just going to call you out. We love you. And we're for you, but we are for us. And we're just not going to do that here. Now, let me add to that. Knowledge is highly important. We want you, as members of this Chair Squeak, to have sound doctrine. We want you to have good theology. It's why we have a school of ministry. It's why we teach Bible classes. It's why we do small groups. It's why we teach the Bible the way that we do here on Sundays. Knowledge matters, and you need it. I want you to know this book, and more importantly, I want you to know the God of this book. Amen? But listen, knowledge for the sake of knowledge is highly dangerous. Why? Because it leads It's not to useful to anybody. Only reason you should desire to know more is so that you can love more, both God and people. Paul goes on and he says next, love isn't rude. It's not rude, so it does not behave improperly toward other people. 
And I, I don't even need to explain that. Just pull up Facebook or Twitter for about five seconds and you'll see what I mean. It breaks my heart, truly. We live in a culture today that is characterized by rudeness. Everywhere you look, people are just jerks. I'll give you an example. I saw online recently a, a local pharmacy that posted a sign on their window asking their customers to be kind to their employees. Did anybody see this? Please be kind. Don't be rude to our employees. We are understaffed. We are overworked. We are overwhelmed. Thank you. And in the moment that I saw that, I'm like, are you kidding? I was frustrated. God, I don't want to love those rude people. Help me to love those rude people. But I'm sitting there thinking, like, who needs a sign like that? Aren't we all grown-ups here? Like, many people out in the world... <laughs> After COVID, we need a sign like that. that. Nobody has any staff. Bear the name of Jesus would need a sign like that. Telling us not to be rude to people? We follow a Savior who was never rude to people. Who was always loving and always patient and always kind. And if we want to follow him and be like him, then this is what we do. We don't act improperly toward those that God has created in his image. But we love them in a patient way and in a kind way. And we avoid rudeness at all costs. It's not rude. Alright, let's keep going. Love is not self-seeking. Or as it said in my Bible, love does not insist on its own way. And I believe with that statement, Paul is really getting at the heart of what it truly means to follow after Christ here. Philippians 2, we see it. In that text, Paul tells us, and he calls us as Christians, to in humility count other people as more significant than ourselves. He says, don't just look to your own interests, look to the interests of other people. Why? Because it's what Christ did for you. I mean, I was thinking this past week about how easy it would have been for Jesus to be self-seeking. You know, God the Father lays out his plan for salvation, and Jesus says back to the Father, yeah, I'm out. Well, he can't really do that ontologically, because his will is perfectly aligned with his Father, but... Okay. Let's not make little hypothetical cases out of things that are ontologically impossible. Commercial? This is monetized. This is a commercial for a virgin cruise in the middle of him talking about Jesus. <laughs> I wonder what the church is making off their YouTube channel. All right. I think there's two ads. So what's the next one? Jesus Christ nope. wasn't self-seeking in any way, but he sought our good at the 
expense of his good. And if we want to be like Jesus, this is what we Cross Point City Church we give up our is the kind of organization that will put their sermons on the internet in the hopes that people will watch them and that they will make money off them. How many views does this have? 3,000 subscribers to this channel. Show me the views. Show me the views. It doesn't have the number of views. It's got three thumbs ups. Oh, this has chapters. That's good. <laughs> I mean, they probably don't know that it's going to be a Carnival Cruise commercial, but it just seems like we're talking about love and serving the body. Cruise time. We're slow to speak, we're quick to listen, we're slow to become angry because anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God requires. It's just my opinion. I think the reason people in our culture are so angry all the time is because nobody wants to listen and everybody wants to talk to them. Nobody wants to hear, everyone wants to be heard. No one wants to reflect, everyone wants to react. Oh, I got a comment on that, I got a post about that, I got to say something about that. And Nobody's slow anymore. Nobody just wants to say, okay, maybe I should keep my mouth shut. Just listen and seek understanding and, and learn. And then later I'll speak because I, I don't want anger to set in because I know that when I'm angry, that's not good for me. It doesn't honor God and it doesn't help people. As Christians, we have to be different in God's world. <laughs> and we have to be those people as we live in the world and interact with the world that just go, okay, I'm going to slow down. Holy Spirit of God, help me. To keep my mouth shut and to keep my ears open. You have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? I'm just slow down and I'm going to listen without speaking to avoid anger. Furthermore, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 7 that we shouldn't even go to bed when we're angry. Because anger gives the devil a foothold. Okay, listen, somebody needs this. Did you know that unresolved anger in your life opens the door for the enemy to wreak havoc upon you? Unresolved anger... Is an open door for the enemy. This is why unresolved, unrighteous anger is so dangerous. You see, it not only damages other people, but it can absolutely destroy you. A few more. Paul goes on, he says, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. And so, uh, I love how the NIV puts this. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So think about it. When you love somebody, you don't have a file cabinet with their name on it. Now I want to go on a cruise. And, and there you are just kind of following them around. It's cold here. Oh, I heard that. Put the date on that. Yep, it's going in there. Got the notes section up on your iPhone. Yep, typing that down. All right, okay, we're going to remember that one. Just going back and, and putting it in there. When you love somebody, you're not keeping track of their sins and their mistakes so that you can bring it back up and use it against them later. Here's, that's another reason why they use this verse at weddings. Because your wife will remind you. And I have found that in relationships, this is the ultimate. <laughs> he knows. Especially in marriage. Uh. I cannot tell you how many spouses I have met with over my 20 years of ministry who've come in. They want to talk to me and they sit in my office and they want help. And then all of a sudden, one of them starts getting historical. And the wife, she goes and she opens the cabinet up. She's like, okay, let's talk about what you said five years ago. I got the date here. And the husband's sitting there going, was I in the room? Like, I don't remember. 
Ever saying? And then the husband's like, okay, yeah, well, let me get yours out. And two years ago, you remember when you did this? And, and it's all historical. And they're just using past sins and past mistakes as weapons to tear each other apart. Love doesn't do that. Love forgives sins and it forgives mistakes and it keeps moving forward. Why? Because this is how God loves us. Come on, I don't know about you, but I'm so glad we don't have a God who's constantly throwing our sins in our faces. James, remember when you were 17, bro? And this came out of your mouth? Enjoy your breakfast, you know? Like, <laughs> remember when you were 25 and you did this to your wife? Have a great day. No, God doesn't do that to us. Therefore, we don't do that to one another. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Next, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And so to love then means that we don't celebrate evil. It means that we don't celebrate sin. We don't throw parties and parades to rejoice over attitudes and behaviors that separate people from God, that oppose God and his way of life. God, I need you to hear me on this day, especially some of you younger generations, because I, I know, I know this is a tension. Okay, I get it. I need you to hear me. There's nothing loving about doing the opposite. Nothing. When you see somebody in your life that you truly love trapped in a sin that you know is separating them from God now and could separate them from all of from God for all of eternity, you don't throw a party over that. You don't put on a t-shirt and walk around like that's a good thing. Good for him for saying this because everybody Especially, I think, in the young, the young people nowadays, they want to affirm things. I, I feel like he's talking about Pride Month or stuff like that. Young people are starting to think, like, oh, these sins, these are okay. These things that used to be social taboos. Um, right, it is loving to call people to repentance. And I'm glad he said that, especially the young people. Good advice. No, we grieve over that, and we mourn over that, and we pray over that, and we ask God to change that life. What we rejoice over is the truth. When we see the truth of the gospel changing lives, that's when we party. When we see sin being forgiven, that's when we break out the streamers and the balloons. When we see injustices being undone and chains being broken, that's when we put on the party hats. And we start celebrating and we rejoice because we know, oh my gosh, there's another sinner who was once lost and is now found. There's another person who was once spiritually dead who has experienced the life-changing grace and mercy of God. And that is something to celebrate. Finally, Paul says that love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. So in other words, love puts up with everything. Love puts up with everything, and I'll explain, okay? To bear with someone means that you protect them. The Greek word here literally means that you cover or you enclose to keep something undesirable from coming in and causing harm. So I think about a plug in a boat. You put a plug in a boat to keep the water out so the boat stays afloat. This is what it means to bear with someone. I'm going to go to bat for them. I'm going to cover them, enclose them. I'm going to keep harmful things out. Next, to believe someone means that you trust them. Not in a gullible sense, because that's, that's not wise. I mean, I know we've got to be wise in how we trust and who we trust. But to trust someone means that you don't start with suspicion and that you don't start with cynicism, but you start with openness and you start with acceptance. And so, in other words, instead of assuming the worst, you choose to believe the best. 
Again, there's some free marriage advice for those of you who need that. I promise that'll help you if you'll practice that. Um, hoping means that you hope the best. And even when that person in your life disappoints you, you don't lose hope. Because you know God can change all things, including them, and he can even use me as part of that process. And so even, even though I'm frustrated and disappointed right now, I'm not going to lose hope. I'm going to keep hoping because I, I know God can do something. And then finally, to endure means that you persevere alongside. When it comes to that person in their trials and their hardships and their difficulties, even in their victories, you're walking through life hand in hand, arm in arm with them. I love how Gordon Fee describes this in his First uh, Corinthians commentary. He says this, love has a tenacity in the present. And so there's bearing and believing. Buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future, there's hope that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance. There's endurance and to continually pour itself out in behalf of of others. And so with all of that on the table, let me bring it back to the question I asked earlier. Okay. And again, this is where you have to be honest with yourself. Do you love people? Do you love people? Truly love people? When you think about your friends and your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and all those crazy people on social media and you think about the other people in this church when you think about your enemies. Here comes the music. Do you choose each and every day to treat in kindness? Are you refusing to be envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, self-seeking, easily angered? Do you forgive wrongs instead of recording wrongs? Do you celebrate the truth instead of celebrating evil? Are you protecting and trusting and hoping and enduring, knowing that God has placed all those people into your life so that they can experience the supernatural love of God from you? Do you love people? Okay, if you would answer that question with a yes today, I just want to say I praise God for you and this church needs you. Uh, we need to be able to hold you up as an example and we need to be able to call other people to follow you as you follow Jesus so that you can help people love in the way that we've all been called to love. Again, I thank you and I praise God for you. Keep it up. If your answer is no, like if you've listened to this message and you were like, well, I thought I did, James, until I preached the rest of those verses and now I'm not so sure. Um, I, I want to say out of love for you today that your lack of love for people reveals a lack of the Spirit's presence in your life. Because remember what we said earlier? The evidence of the Spirit's presence is the presence of love. Okay, if He is actively working in you and actively working through you, you will be characterized by the love of God. And if you're not characterized by the love of God, here's the really great news. You ready? That can change in a moment. In a moment. And it can change in this moment. So over the next few moments, here's what I want to invite you to do. Okay, we're going to stop. And we're going to just remember, as we pray and respond and sing, how we have been loved as sinful people. That's where we're going to start. We're going to remember Jesus, and we're going to remember what God did to demonstrate his great love for us. And, and then, this is key, I want to challenge you to pray that the Holy Spirit of God would birth the supernatural love of God in you so that you can give it away to other people. Listen to me, you're not going to get this right on your own. You're not going to leave here convicted going, okay, I'm going to try hard and I'm going to do better and I'm going to get it right. No, doesn't work like that. 
You can't do this by yourself. What you need is the Spirit of God to do something supernatural on the inside of you so that this love can then flow from you. You need Him. And so I want us to remember how we've been loved, and then I want to ask the Spirit of God to birth this love in us so that we can then give it away. And so wherever we are right now, in, in whatever room, I just want us to bow in this moment. we're settling in let me let me just say this as well there may be some of you who have shown up today and you don't know christ as your savior and lord like you've never received the love of god i just want to tell you you'll never be able to give this kind of love away until you first receive it from him if you've never put your faith in jesus christ this is something that that bothers me is when they're praying. I mean, the, the pastor's got his eyes closed. I mean, I know he's talking to people. It's prayer time. And the guy walks behind him and grabs his little podium and carries it away. Like, can you not get, can you not wait till they're done praying or finishing the invitation? Do you have to get that podium right then? But I believe you want to give it to me anyway. And today I want to receive it. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. He died for my sins so that I could be forgiven and be loved by you. And God, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead to defeat sin for me, death for me, hell for me, so that I could spend eternity with you. What if there was a cruise commercial during the invitation? So God, today I hand the reins of my life over God, I want you to save me, to forgive me. I say yes to Jesus. God, I receive your love today. Father, over the next few moments as as we sing and pray and respond, God, would you just meet us right where we are in whatever way we need you, and would you go to work? God, we know that you are in this place. God, we're just asking you to do things in us that we can't do on our own. We want to get this right. We need your help. And we need to play music behind this to make the people buy in. More like Jesus in this moment. That's our ask. God, be glorified and honored in this place. Thank you for your great love. God, we celebrate you. We honor you. We rejoice in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, it's over. Okay. It's been a while since I did that, and I'm sorry, a lot of that was, there was not much review, because he's just going on and on, and everything's fine. Um, it's going to get worse, of course, because it's Crosspoint. Thank you for bearing with that one. And let me just say, I'm, I'm sorry it took me two years to get back to that. That's two years that people could have been listening to these sermon reviews, and getting out of Crosspoint City Church. Uh, today... My wife and my female children went, when one of my sons went to visit her grandma with her parents, I didn't go because I had to coach a basketball game, and her her grandma's apartment's kind of small. It's like a retirement apartment. So time opened up for me to do this, and you know what? It's 9.57. I might try to get one more in. I don't know. But I finally got time to do this, and I want to finish it. Thanks for listening. I want. How many more of these do I have? 
Um, there's one, two. Oh, it says which ones I've watched. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. There's 16 messages in this series, and now I've done five. Hopefully it does not take me, you know, two years to do four, because that ain't, <laughs> that would take me eight years to finish it. Uh, so remember, the purpose of this is just to give a really thorough review of the message from the pulpit of this church to show people why they shouldn't go there. There's a lot of things you don't see of why you shouldn't go there, that it's multi-campus, that they're singing reckless love at singing time. But, we'll go, oh, look at this. Uh, the next one started, and they have blue LED spotlights. That We all know from the literature that blue is the spirit, the, the color the Holy Spirit likes to act upon. All right, thanks for listening to the Christian Commute special episode. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again soon with another one of these for Crosspoint City Church. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.